0: We ask the question, is it time now to scrap the app? Plus, I will be talking to the Member of Parliament for Calais about what I saw in the English Channel yesterday and whether we're being taken for a ride. And joining me on Talking Pines, cricket cult hero, Monty Panessa. Well, 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 what a mess the whole thing is. I thought with the early vaccine rollout, not only had Brexit been fully vindicated, but that we put ourselves in a very advantageous position compared to other countries. I'm afraid that advantage has now been squandered completely. Yes, we've had the Delta variant and rising infection rates. But to think that just four days ago we were supposed to celebrate Freedom Day... Well actually what's happening is after half a million last week and now another hundred six hundred thousand this week, people, working people, are being pinged and told to self-isolate and to stay at home. Add to that the million school kids uh, who weren't at school last week because they've been sent home to isolate as well and you realise that far from opening up, we're actually beginning a process of locking down and if we go on at this rate, goodness knows where we'll be. In some parts of the country, there are big companies, uh, whether it's production lines or warehouses or whatever it may be, where 25% or more of the staff are off. We had Charlie Mullins here from Pimlico Plumbers just the other evening telling us that what's happening now to his staff is much more serious than anything at the worst moments during the pandemic. And we have the NHS app, which is now losing credibility. According to polling, 42% of people... That's 42% of those who've still got the app, and perhaps up to 25% who did have the app have got rid of it. 42% of people said if they were pinged and told to isolate, they would only do so if they felt they were showing some symptoms. Uh, Is it time to scrap the app? Well, I'm afraid I think it really is. I think that volume, lateral flow testing in the workplace is the way forward. That is my view. And don't forget at the weekend... That Boris Johnson and the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, uh, despite the fact that they were told they were pinged and told to isolate, initially said they would go back to work because there is a pilot scheme, a workplace pilot scheme, but it's only open to government organisations. And they then, of course, uh, against the weight of public opinion, decided, oh, we can't be seen to have one rule for one and one rule for another, and decided they would, in fact, isolate. To me, they got that wrong. What they should have done is to have said, by the end of the week, we will allow all private businesses as well to be able to use that workplace pilot. That's how I feel about it. I think the app is now doing more harm than good. That is my view, but let's go to somebody uh, who really is very concerned about it. And remember, I want to hear your comments too, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can email in your thoughts. And I'm particularly keen to hear from you if you are running a business, whether you think the app works for you or not. But joining me now is Ian Wright, CEO of the Food and Drink Federation. Ian, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good
1: evening, Nigel. Nice to be with you.
0: Now, I understand that it's a mixed picture, that there are some parts of the country suffering very badly, uh, where a lot of the staff are being pinged, other parts of the country where it isn't quite so bad. But kind of, when we talk about food and drink, I guess the viewers are thinking, well, it's restaurants and pubs. But as I understand it, this is actually becoming a bit of a supply chain problem. And we've seen pictures of supermarkets where panic buyers are stripping the shelves so this runs right through the industry doesn't it from production all the way through
1: well it runs right away from the farm to the fork uh it certainly involves lots of different parts of a very sophisticated supply chain and as many as you and many of your viewers will know if one bit of that supply chain goes wrong there is a real prospect of a knock-on effect so the big uh, concerns at the moment are in some factories i represent the manufacturers some of our factories, as I think you said at the start, have very high levels of absence. And when absence in factories and in supermarkets actually gets above 20 towards 30 percent, actually, you probably have to close either a line, a production line or the store, because the, the, whole, uh, the whole way the place works is based on significant numbers of people in work. It's not, it's not the case that you have to be over 50 percent to shut it down. And so the supply chain is under a lot of pressure. We're not gonna run out of food, but what will happen is that people's access to food in their favorite supermarket might be affected or their favorite pub or their favorite restaurant. And we will see, and have been seeing for three or four weeks actually, choice eroded on the shelves. Now, supermarkets are very good at filling the shelves with products so that they don't look empty, but the choice is already being restricted.
0: So the message really from the Food and Drink Federation is it's a problem, but we shouldn't panic. We shouldn't go out and absolutely fill that shopping trolley with everything we can get our hands on.
1: Well, the last thing you want from me is to provoke the Corporal Jones moment. Don't panic, Mr Mannering, because that's the short route to everybody panicking. But the simple truth is there's lots of food in the system. Uh, You will find that most supermarkets are open and most supermarkets have most shelves with the products you want. But there will be some products you can't get. And what we're saying, our message is actually to the government, is to put it in the vernacular, pull your finger out, get on with making some decisions on this. And if if it is the case that you can't start this, what I think it's called test to release, test to release before the 16th of October, could we possibly know why? So is it because they've run out of PCR tests? Is it because uh, there's something in the numbers which says they have to wait that long? I think we really do deserve to know because then businesses could make some plans.
0: Yeah, I mean, my thought on, on the whole thing Ian, was that, you know, rather than having an app, which I mean, I called it a mad app because, you know, you can be pinged through the wall of your apartment because somebody six or eight feet the other side, you know, has tested positive, which clearly uh, is, 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 is a dreadful flaw. I also get the feeling that when government tends to go for big technology, it generally gets it wrong. But what is wrong with the idea of people, let's say, let's say they do get notified, but rather than being forced to isolate, they go into their workplace and take a lateral flow test. Lateral flow tests are available cheaply in the tens of millions and you can get a result within eight to ten minutes. Wouldn't that be some way forward for your industry?
1: Well, I half agree with you. I don't think people should turn off the app, and I don't think that managers, if they are to, I don't think any of our managers are telling their workers to turn off the app. That wouldn't be right, wouldn't be responsible. And in the end, it's for individuals who are pinged to decide what they want to do. And if they want to stay home, they're perfectly entitled, and indeed, the government's encouraging them to do so. But I do So I wouldn't delete that because I think if, if we do that, by the end of the, this process, we'll be in a worse place because we don't have any information. But I do think that the mass testing of our workers is something we should be doing. Yeah. I think if you're pinged, you should be tested before. I would do it before you go out of the house. Wait till you see the result. If you're, if you're negative, then you should be able to go to work and go about your business that day and then test again the next day. Obviously, if you've got symptoms, you should stay home.
0: Yeah, no, look, no, that makes sense to me. And yet, what is the message that your industry and others, what is the direct contact? What is the messaging that you are getting from government?
1: Well, we talk to government a lot. We talk to them. Uh, I spoke to uh, my sponsoring minister, George Eustace, uh, day before yesterday. No, yesterday, actually. Sorry. And we made these points to him very forcefully. And, you know, he takes them on board. I don't know what his personal view is. I think there is a division of opinion in the government. Uh, I also think that, that the issue here is to is that if we don't get some solution to this over the next, let's say by the end of the weekend, we're going to see that uh, something you said right at the start of the show, you said you're, we're seeing a kind of gradual reimposition of lockdown mm. in a sort of chaotic way. And I think that isn't deliberate. It's not part of a plot. But it is what will happen. And if that goes on till the 16th of August, you know, we may see, you know, a very large number of supermarkets shut, a large amount of shelves uh, disrupted, a lot of production disrupted, and a very disgruntled and irritated set of shoppers and the population. And I can't think that that is a good recipe for further compliance later in the year.
0: Nor can I. Thank you very much indeed. That was Ian right there. And, you know, a CEO of the Food and Drink Federation telling us not to panic, but also saying there are major, major problems right throughout that industry, from the producer to the consumer. Now, as you know, regular viewers, I was out in the English Channel yesterday uh, watching the migrant crisis, and one of the things that I saw, again, because I'd seen it last year, was a French naval vessel escorting shadowing and escorting a boat that had illegally taken off from a French beach uh, that was coming across to the promised land of England as they see it. Those that are coming see it and I'm afraid uh, you know, as soon as they got to British waters they dropped it off and that was the end of it and you're seeing some pictures here. This was Dover this morning. Uh, You see actually a young child being carried there and there are children coming although it's worth remembering that about 90 percent of those that come are young men. Now all of this has happened in a week when Priti Patel has done another deal with the French government. And by deal, well, what I actually mean is that she's agreed to give France another 54 million pounds. This follows on from 30 million pounds that we gave them last autumn. Uh, And in total, we've given the French about 180 million pounds and that is to police their beaches, to increase their security and their intelligence and to stop migrant boats coming to the United Kingdom. Doesn't seem to be happening. Um, And I wonder why. Now, joining me now, I'm very pleased to say, is Pierre-Henri Dumont, the Member of Parliament, Republican Member of Parliament for Calais. Pierre-Henri, welcome to GB News. Thank you very much indeed for coming on this show. I visited the jungle a few years ago, so I know that Calais has really had some very difficult problems... For a long time. But isn't the truth of it, Pierre-Henri, that what you're now doing is trying to just allow those problems to come across the channel to us? No, it's not
2: true. Um, what you need to understand, what the British people need to understand is that we've got um, hundreds, thousands of migrants um, every day around Calais, not only in Calais, but around and all along the coast, from Belgium to Normandy. Um, and it's very difficult to stop the boats at the same time. More than 50% of the boats are stopped every night at shore, before they go to sea, because we know where they are and we find them because of drones, because of technology, because of human intelligence. We we can locate um, the the smugglers and stop them before they go at sea. But when at night you've got 20-30 boats at the same time, on a very large scale, you cannot stop all of them. You can stop a part of them, but not all of them. No, and and, and, and two... I
0: understand. I understand that nighttime that is difficult, and I know that coastline and, and a lot of it's sand dunes, but, but what's been happening in the last few weeks is that many of the boats that are launching are launching in broad daylight. In fact, it's noticeable how much later in the day the migrant boats are coming. Are you telling me... That the french gendarmerie cannot stop these boats being launched in bright daylight i don't
2: know if you have been to the french shore but what you need to understand is that it's not a clear land in france especially around calais it's uh, you, you do have cliffs uh, you do have uh, trees you <sighs> do have world war II um, concrete buildings so they can hide and unless I saw that, personally, I went with the gendarmerie and in less than two minutes, they can pop from somewhere you don't know where they are and go at sea in less than two or three minutes. So, yes, what I'm saying to you is that even in daylight, even in bright, uh, bright and wonderful uh, sunshine, it's very difficult to stop all the boats, especially okay. if you do have 20 or 30 boats, on a 50-kilometre scale who are going at sea quite at the same time.
0: Okay, I put this to you. I spoke a couple of hours ago to a professional international seafarer who two mornings ago, in daylight, but two mornings ago, saw just to the west of Calais a migrant boat that was no more than 50 metres from the shore, laden with its illegal human cargo, and a gendarmerie rib that came up to that boat made no attempt to stop it or turn it round when frankly they were in no more than a metre of water and they could have paddled back to shore. The gendarmerie made no attempt whatsoever to do that once they were 50 metres out and indeed the boat carried on, got to the main shipping channel that goes into uh, Calais port, at which Esco, one of your French naval vessels, shadowed the dinghy all the way across till it got into British waters and then, of course, it was our problem. I mean, I put it to you that your gendarmerie aren't trying very hard, that you've got a massive problem, as you've said yourself, mostly because of the European Union's ridiculous policy in 2015 that anybody that crossed the Mediterranean could simply stay. I put it to you, that the the, the way I feel about this, and many British people feel about this, is despite all this money we're giving you, you're not really trying very hard. No, it's not true. I mean, more than
2: half of the crossing attempts are stopped. But what you need to understand is that...
0: Prove it. Yes, more than 50. Prove it. Prove it. I hear this all the time. I've seen no evidence. I've seen no evidence of it whatsoever. Uh,
2: I, I do have the numbers. I wrote a, a paper uh, last year for the budget in the French parliament. I can send it yep. to you. You will have all the data, all the, all the numbers, so that we'll be pleased to send it to you. Well, I can... Uh, I've got two things to say to you. First of all is we need to understand why all of these migrants want to go to the UK and do not want to stay in France or in some other part of Europe. The fact is, if you take a look at what their nationality are, you do have people from Sudan, from Iraq, from uh, Eritrea, uh, from Bangladesh. All of these are former British colonies.
0: All of this. So I think that, I, I don't think that connection is very strong. And I can promise if, you, I can promise you. Having met with hundreds you, of people, I'm having met with hundreds you, of people. You, no, very no, no, few, very few speak English. Very, very few speak English. I promise you. The,
2: the fact is, the fact is, they are coming from former British colonies. Mainly, the the majority of them are coming. I don't say they speak a full, perfect English, as you do, but (laughs) but a a majority of them are coming from former British colonies, meaning that they sometimes have got a lot of relatives in the UK, because in the UK, it's different than in France. It's easier for um, undocumented people to work in the UK than to work in France.
0: But but none of this, none of this, none of this is the point. The point is, it's an, it is an illegal trade, and yes, of course, they all claim refugee status. But as you know as well as I do, you know, refugee status was clearly defined back in 1951, and you claim it in the first safe no. country you come to. No. That has that, been that has that, been the that, international heard, agreement heard, since 1951. I'm sorry, but I heard this this point a lot
2: of time, especially in the British part uh, of my uh speaking people uh but there is nof- nothing as the first safe country in the yes. geneva convention that does not exist I'm that, really, that I'm, it, re-
0: I'm really sorry. It, I'm really sorry. In the Geneva convention, I'm pierre Henri Dumont, says, You know, there is there is a United Nations Refugee Charter, and all of that, which I think France is still a signatory to, unless, of course, you're the rogue state, not us, as many accuse. And that has been that has been the convention, you know, ever since 1951. And you're saying that's not the case, yeah?
2: No, I'm saying that there is nothing. The Geneva Convention on Refugees. Uh, on claiming asylum in the first safe country. And just let me give you the data. If you take a look at the data on um, refugees and asylum seekers in France, we had four times more asylum
0: seekers last year than in the UK. Why? Well, of course, because of European Union policy, as I say, and I I was there in the European Parliament. (laughs) I I watched this policy being unveiled, and you have said to anyone that crosses the Mediterranean, you can stay.
2: No, we are not saying that, we are just giving, uh, we are not talking about people who can stay. We are talking about people who are asking for asylum, who are applying for asylum. Uh, Applying for asylum is basic human rights. Then the country is going to say yes or no, yes, you can stay or no, you need to go back home. And yes, in France, we have a problem to send them back home if we are denying them asylum, as every country in the world, because first, the, 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 the country where they're coming from, Are not eager to take it
0: back. So so should we send should we send everybody back to France then? Would that be the answer? Because very few of those that come would genuinely qualify as refugees. uh, Well, I I mean, mean, how would you how would you react if we? And I I, I have a feeling here that the only way we're going to stop this is if we do what the Australians did back in 2012 with Indonesia and simply tow the boats. I mean, clearly your clearly your navy actually is going to continue, say thank you very much for the 54 million pounds, is going to continue to escort vessels into British waters. What if we just if, tow the boats back to Calais? How would you feel about that? If you, if you
2: read uh, some of, from, of my interviews, I said that I was totally against the fact that the UK is giving you us work. money.
0: You were. I, because, agree with, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I agree with that. For, but we want to stop this problem.
2: For, for a simple reason. Just, just for a simple reason. Because yeah. if you are giving us money to do your job, because we are keeping your frontier, your, your, your border, uh, we are your clients. And you expect something from us, which is well, the help uh, stopping good. the migrants to cross.
0: But hell, the fact but is, we, hell, th- that's hell not... Hell would be nice. And, and can I also ask you one other thing that doesn't, but, get, but, talk, that doesn't just, get talked about enough? I mean, I mean, do you see a solution to this?
2: Yes. There are a British solution and there are French solutions. French right. solution is something I advocate for, is to create special facilities where we can retain illegal migrants in France, 100 kilometres away from Calais, and then process asylum applications. Say them, please ask for asylum in France. And then we'll see if we uh, grant you with asylum or if we send you back to your home country. And for the British government, I think that you need to take your burden of uh, the asylum seekers' numbers in Europe. No.
0: Or in the world. No. No, no, no. Or in the world. It's not like a European sorry. Union. I'm sorry. We are Brexit Britain. No, we are Brexit Britain. We do I'm not, not want... The, we We, we don't want to pay, pay for your mistakes, do we? The fact that you've I'm made some, p- about... you've made, you've made some not... terrible mistakes, and you're now saying we should share the burden of your mistakes, no, and, and we no. don't want to do that. Because you are confusing the political
2: Europe that was European Union, yeah. which you left, and that's the British choice to leave. I regret it, but that's your choice and totally respect it. And you with the, polit- the uh, geographical Europe. Uh, Brexit doesn't mean that England or the UK, is out of the geographical Europe.
0: That's well, a fact. <laughs> Look, I tell you what, I tell you what, I want to say thank you for coming on and having this very spirited debate. Um, I, I, I get a clear sense of what you think we should do. Uh, we are feeling increasingly frustrated. What is very clear to me is the numbers crossing the channel are going to increase very sharply in the next few months. So can i say thank you for coming on and talking to us, and we'd love to see you back here again, and we'll continue this debate. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thank you. Right, coming up, we're going to be talking vaccine passports. And is it possible that Boris Johnson could lose his majority in the House of Commons over it? Another 620,000 people have been pinged in the last week and are isolating at home... And it's causing big problems. Some factories, some companies in some parts of the country losing 25% of their workforce. And I asked you, is it time to scrap the app, or if not scrap it, at least deal with the data and the information differently? And Colin says, I have never put the app on my phone and have no intention to. Just another way for the government to keep control of people. Have to say, Colin, I've never put the app on my phone. I have no intention of doing so either. George on Twitter says, no, the time to scrap it was never to download it in the first place. Gosh, we've got some proper sceptics here. Paul doesn't agree. No, the virus is still here. Well, that is true. The virus is still here. Um, and we have seen you know, some pretty rapid um, rises of it over the last couple of weeks. But, but, is this the way to deal with it? And, 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 and I, I'm going to make the point I made... Again, uh, and I've made it for the last few days, surely, surely the answer is mass lateral flow testing in offices and in factories. And that test is cheap. That test is readily available in the tens of millions. And by doing that, we will save the private sector, who already have paid so much in this pandemic. Will save them a great deal. Peter says the government is planning to scrap self isolation for the double vaccinated adults and under 18s from the 16th of August. I think this needs to be brought forward to stop the country grinding to a halt. Well, that's the problem. The 16th of August looks a very, very long way off given the number of pings that are going out there every single day. And Maureen on email says never downloaded it in the first place. The only people who did. We're trying to get pinged to be off work. Well, yeah, uh, there may have been some of that. And equally, we had a lot of stories about schoolchildren who, before taking various tests, were drinking orange juice and various things because they wanted to bunk off school. Wendy says on email, I've been pinged today and have to self-isolate for three days, even though I've had two vaccinations months ago and had a negative test. Why is it only three days, not ten days? Why is the NHS app not pinged my husband telling him the same thing and the funny thing is I haven't been out for over 20 days and haven't been in contact with anyone. Well, uh, you know, I'm hearing this, there are a lot of people who think this is a mad app, it doesn't work and it's bad. But it leads on to something else that government keeps chopping and changing its mind on. One moment we're told there won't be a vaccine passport, the next we get Boris Johnson, despite all the talk of Freedom Day and all the rest of it, basically warning us at that press conference that, really, we're probably going to have to have a vaccine passport uh, to go to a nightclub or go elsewhere. Um, And then we had the vaccine minister, Nadim Zahawi,
3: and this is what he had to say on the COVID. Mr. Speaker, this week, after a successful trial, we have rolled out the NHS COVID pass. This allows people safely and securely to demonstrate their COVID status, whether it's proof of vaccination status, test results, or natural immunity. Anyone can access a pass via the NHS app, the NHS website, or by calling 119 and asking for a letter to demonstrate vaccine status. People will also be able to demonstrate proof of a negative test result. Although we don't encourage its use In essential settings like supermarkets, other businesses and organisations in England can adopt the pass as a means of entry where it's suitable for their venue or premises and when they can see its potential to keep their clients or their customers safe. But for proprietors of venues and events where large numbers are likely to gather and likely to mix with people from outside their households for prolonged periods, Deploying the pass is the right thing to do. The pass has an important role to play in slowing the spread of the virus. And so we reserve the right to mandate its use in the future. So there we are. We reserve
0: the right to mandate its use in the future, which from this government, which has used the pandemic in every way to extend its reach and its centralisation of power. That means they intend to do it. Yes, the libertarian Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And once they've done it, by the way, they open the door for identity cards and a whole host of other things. They're just not going to tell us that at this moment in time. But I wonder, are there enough people sitting on those Conservative backbenches who just say this is so fundamentally anti what the Conservative Party has always been, that I simply cannot support the Prime Minister and what are Labour and the other opposition parties going to do. Previously, we had a battle on foreign aid. There was speculation maybe Boris Johnson could lose in the House of Commons. He didn't. Is this something that could cause the Prime Minister his first real political problem? Well, joining us is our political correspondent, Tom Harwood, who is at Downing Street as I speak. Tom, how are... The backbenches, the traditional Conservative Party, how are they feeling about what Nadim Sahawi had to say?
4: Well, I'll tell you what, Nigel, they were very dispirited at the start of this week. However, midway through this week, something happened that changed their minds. And I was speaking to one rebellious Conservative MP this morning who told me that he now believes that if a vote were to be brought on vaccine passports in September, the government would lose it. And this is because uh, just yet, just two days ago, the Liberal Democrats decided that they would oppose vaccine passports. And not long after that, the Labour Party, a big surprise to a lot of people. The Labour Party decided that they would oppose vaccine passports too, meaning that there's a real chance that the government could be defeated. I can tell you tonight that 43 Conservative MPs have signed up to Big Brother Watch, a campaigning organisation pro-privacy campaign, that 43 Conservative MPs have signed up to their campaign to prevent vaccine passports. And of course 43 Conservative MPs would wipe out the Conservative majority of 80, because all you need is 40 MPs to change their vote, to vote to the other side, to wipe out that 80-seat majority.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And and suddenly, I mean, Labour, who throughout the pandemic have sort of said, well, let's do even more than the government. Let's be even more cautious than the government. This shift of position from Keir Starmer, what's uh, what's behind that? Is this purely political? Is it secure, Um, you know, sharpening up his political credentials?
4: Well, there's been a lot of criticism over Sir here, but he seems to have a bit of a string, spring in his step after the Labour Party managed to retain, narrowly retain, but retain that Batley and Spen seat in the by-election. Well, potentially, this is the Labour Party being more political. We know that they hold a whole, whole host of contradictory positions. They're in favour of mandatory masks on trains, but no masks in nightclubs, which they sh- mm. think should open, but should open without vaccine passports, but with tests. I mean, it's a complete mess, the <laughs> Labour Party positioning but to some extent that doesn't matter because all they want to do is embarrass the government and if the government loses a vote on vaccine passports guess what the headline is not going to be the Labour Party has contradictory positions the headline will be the Prime Minister loses the vote absolutely gamble the Labour Party appears to be taking
0: no absolutely Tom Harwood thank you very much indeed for joining us and there we are 43 Conservative MPs saying very clearly that they will rebel against the government on vaccine passports and I suspect that most of them actually really do mean it, Um, and we'll stay with that position. So perhaps the Labour Party suddenly becoming a bit cannier and realising that basically copying everything that the government says gives them no profile whatsoever. Well, how would vaccine passports impact nightclubs, impact big venues? Well, joining us now is Peter Marks, CEO of Recom UK, the UK's largest Specialist Operator of Late Night Bars and Clubs. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Delighted. So, how on earth would it work? Would you have somebody on the door uh, checking all of this? Would it be open to forgery, to fraud? Would you welcome it? Would it be a way of saying uh, to customers, look, you know, this really is a safe place to come?
5: Well, uh, only a week ago, the COVID status certification review report uh, stated that it wasn't a good idea, it couldn't be implemented, it was subject to fraud, that uh, uh, it would be um, uh, unfair on the young that hadn't had both vaccines, um, and a whole other plethora of uh, reasons why it couldn't be brought in. And I welcome that. Uh, I was delighted to see that because I thought, well, why would we just want to do it in nightclubs? Because there's a whole lot of rubbish talked about with nightclubs. You know, people think that they're terrible and that, it, you know, that, you know, that it's an absolute soup of uh, of, uh, uh, a virus uh, uh, potentially etc etc so I was delighted when that came out and then I was absolutely dismayed when all of a sudden on freedom day before we'd even opened most of our clubs on freedom day five o'clock in the afternoon ah we shall just do it for nightclubs. That makes sense, and hopefully there's enough messaging there that we can clear off on our summer break, uh, and everything will be okay. I, I, honestly, Nigel, I could not believe it.
0: And well, the reason I, is, I, I guess, I guess from his point of view, from Boris's point of view, I guess he says, "Well, nightclubs tend to be below ground. Nightclubs tend to be, you know, a heaving, sweating mass of humanity." I mean, that's his impression, isn't it?
5: Well, I dare say nightclubs were like that when Boris used to go to them in 1983. But let me tell you now, they're not. We've got the best ventilation in the whole of hospitality because of the days of smoking and because of pyrotechnics and smoking you needed to be able to clear the place very very quickly just in case there was a fire. So I'd love to tell you we put it in in the last 12 months, not the case. You know, the average nightclub has you know, something like £250,000 worth of, 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 uh, of ventilation if it's a sizeable club over a thousand and my clubs are nearly all over a thousand fifteen hundred they're nearly all the largest clubs in their city or town uh, and it's just you know if Ventilation is important. Then, frankly, that's what we should be uh, talking about here, not vaccine passports. Now, let let me just uh, sort of paint anything else. What you do is you risk assess your way into working around the risks and whether you're running a, I don't know, a nuclear power station or, or a nightclub. What you do is you work with the scientists and you work what you should do to minimise those risks. And frankly, that's how we should be back not through vaccine
0: passports. It's just political claptrap. OK, so you hope the government gets beaten in the Commons in September?
5: Well, I'm not going to say it as simple as that, because what I'm concerned of uh, uh, is that, um, that Labour will say, well, yes, we shouldn't have vaccine passports, yeah. but nightclubs should remain closed. And that's where the difficulty okay. is for me.
0: Nope. no... Well, it's been a very, very tough time for you and it looks like you're not out of the woods yet by a long, long way. But Peter Marks, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, I have to just have a very quick what the Farage moment here because Russia, yes, Russia. Remember the Russia hoax? Donald Trump was only elected because of Russian interference and that went on and there was a big Mueller investigation into him. It must have been the Russians. It's the only way Trump could possibly have won. And on this side of the, of the channel, of course, Brexit. Ah, yes, it was the Russians that funded Brexit, and in particular, uh, people like Mr Aaron Banks and myself. Indeed, Hillary Clinton said publicly that Nigel Farage was funded by the Russians. Those awful... Trumpites and Eurosceptics are all in bed with Russia. Well, it turns out that, actually, the boot is on the other foot. It's Mrs Merkel who has made Germany increasingly dependent on Russia for gas. And there is the proposed Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia into Germany. And guess what? Joe Biden's administration have now done a U-turn from the USA, they've backed the deal, they've sought some assurances from Russia over the integrity of the Ukraine, and the truth of it is, all of those that scream foul over Russia, it's actually the Democrats in the USA, the Remainers in the United Kingdom, and the globalists, they're the ones, actually, who are in thrall to Putin, not people like Donald Trump. Or myself. Right in a moment, we'll be talking pints with cult cricket legend Monty Panesar. Well, joining me this evening on Talking Pints is Monty Panesar, former English cricketer. Actually. He is, to cricket nuts like me, a bit of a cult figure. I mean, you kind of got to this point in your career, didn't you, towards the end of it, when all you had to do was touch the ball in the outfield and there was a, a sort of cheer of approval that came from the stands. And I, I don't know what it was, but you, you kind of put a smile on people's faces at cricket grounds around the country. What was the magic thing? What, what made people smile about Monty Panesar?
6: Well, you know... First by the way, yeah. cheers. Yeah, cheers. Well, I've got
0: orange juice. That's know, all that right. Point. That's yeah. OK. It's allowed. You can put, I, <laughs> <laughs> as long as I can have this.
6: Yes. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for having me on your show. You know, I'm really enjoying it. Watching uh, your new show on uh, GB News. I was a big fan of you on LBC. I remember even calling, giving you a few calls, didn't I? I so you yeah, kind yeah. of surprised. you thinking, is this yeah. really Monty Vance? ringing in. Really <laughs> it
0: was, yeah. Yes. Yeah.
6: But, yeah, I think, uh, you know, going back to your question, I think it, I, I was quite kind of surprised, really. You know, I think when I took my first test wicket, which was, you know, Sachin Tendulkar, which is, you know, the, the best not
0: cricketer. A, not a bad way to start.
6: Yeah, yeah. You know, couldn't, couldn't have a, a better start. And he's obviously, you know, the best in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's where that's, you know, I never used to celebrate a wicket like that. I, n- I never celebrated like that. And then I just suddenly went off like a you know, firework and uh, like yeah. a fire rocket and just, you know, enjoyed my celebrations. And, and I think that's where, you know, that kind of love for the game and really sort of, you know, celebrating my moments and my successes, you know, in, in cricket, um, uh, that's where it came about. And, and then I just started, you know, to just do that. Every time I got a wicket, I thought, I'm just going to
0: enjoy this moment. <laughs> you did. Yes, yes. <laughs> you did. But the funny thing, I mean, you know, you played 50 test matches, took plenty of wickets, and yet... You know, as somebody who was a big fan of Test cricket, I'm looking forward to the series with India, and we'll have a quick chat about that. Uh, I can't wait to get back to watch a Test match. Um, and yet, you're remembered in cricket, not for your bowling. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, and, and perhaps you, perhaps it's not a legacy that you would want, but I remember you, I will always remember you, sitting at home, England playing Australia, it's the Ashes, it's tense as hell. There we are, playing down at Cardiff, we're getting absolutely duffed up by the Australians again, and it's pretty desperate stuff because there are two batsmen at the crease, James Anderson and Monty Panassar, and they're both, frankly, rabbits when it comes to holding the bat in a test match, and you had to survive for 11 and a half overs, and you did. When you walked out there, I mean, the pressure was on you guys. Did you think you could do it? Uh, to be honest, we 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 thought at
6: some point we'll get out and Australia will probably win the test match and it'll be 1-0 up, and then suddenly, you know, the, the, the old saying, they win the first test and they end up just, you know, winning the ashes. But I think that was the sort of... Catalyst, really? You know, I think me, Jimmy, and both of us, we just said, let's take it ball by ball. And I remember we, at that time, Andy Flower had a, a buddy, you know, a batting buddy system in place when he just, you know, got appointed yeah. the England coach. He yeah. said, he said, why doesn't our tail, you know, why doesn't it wag? And I remember Collingwood, you know, he said to me, he goes, Monty, make sure your backlift, you know, is really low. If it's at, if the ball is at the stumps, you just, you know, play nice and straight. If it's short coming up the body, just drop your hands, and if it hits you, don't worry about it. And it was really simple for me, you know, that's all I had to think about. I had two instructions and the third one, obviously the most important one, is watch the ball. Yeah.
0: And, um, and, 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 over, yeah. and over after over went by and I'm sitting at home watching it on the telly thinking, well, you know, if this, this is all good fun, but it can't. there's no way. There's no way these two can last against this great Australian team for 11 and a half overs. And I imagine the pressure for the last few balls, you must have really been feeling it by the last few balls. Actually,
6: I think it was when Marcus North came on to uh, bowl. Um, that's when I realised that, you know, he's a part-time off spinner. And I remember I cut him for four where backward point just, you know, um, misfilled the ball. And then uh, that's where I, I, I had the confidence and I even said to Jimmy, I think I think we're
0: going to do it here. We're going to draw this test match. Well, it was an amazing moment. And, and, of course, I'm a cricket nut, but some American friends of mine Said to me, What are you celebrating? I mean, what do you mean it's a draw? <laughs> but in cricket, a draw, it's a lot better than losing again. It was an amazing moment. And now, last night, I was driving home from here, went past the Oval, and it was the first game of the hundred, this new concept that the ECB have introduced. I saw a report in one of the newspapers. A, a young girl was asked what she'd enjoyed about the evening. She said, The fireworks. So, for those that don't know, this is cricket with fireworks, DJs, music. Uh, and for some reason, uh, 100 Bulls. Uh, I mean, we already have a 20-over form of the game. What are we doing to cricket? I mean, I, I, mean, I do understand that the five-day game uh, can seem a bit stuffy for some people and that a 50-over game is over in one day, a 20-20 game is over in an afternoon and can be very entertaining and great fun to watch. But w- why are they messing about with the game? Why are they trying to force upon cricket? A concept. I think it's doomed to failure, uh, and I have to say, I'll be honest with you. I rather hope it is doomed to failure. Uh, Come on, Nigel. No, I mean uh, we were good friends five minutes ago, well, and well, now you're <laughs> you're saying hundred hundred. But, that's, 100, but that's you want it to point. be a failure. But that's the point about mm. this part of the program: is we can have a drink, we can yeah. agree, we can disagree, uh, we can do it volubly, but we do it in a civil. But we do yes. it in a civilized. Yes, way. absolutely. So tell me, you, you think the hundred is going to work? Yeah. Look.
6: look I think it, you know it, it is yeah. going to work in my opinion because you know yesterday I think we had uh, I think the highest record you know watching the women's game I think it was at like 1.6 in a million you know viewers watching on BBC yeah. terrestrial TV and I think that's you know I think with the ECB and the 100 you know but but they, they've kind of like. Um, they, they purposely, I think, make sure that the games are on BBC Central TV because, of you know, if, if, if it does fail, then at least the viewing figures on BBC will go, you know, really well. But it surprised us yesterday, you know, and I, and I think, and I really hope it is because it will attract a new audience. It will attract, you know. I've heard it all before.
0: Yeah, but you're I've a cricket s- enthusiast. You love your Test cricket. <laughs> right? I know, I accept <laughs> that. But if this is the same ECB that allowed Alan Stanford to fly a helicopter into lords with two million quid, you know, in a big trunk, and he's now serving a life sentence. So their judgment isn't always good. But let's, well, we'll, we'll see whether it works. I don't like it. And I, but, <laughs> what, why do we need it when we've got 2020, which provides amazing entertainment and excitement? And, and actually, already, you know, I went to a game at Beckenham. that Kemp were involved in 2020, Sunday afternoon. And already, I would say, it was a very different kind of crowd. So why do we need something else like this.
6: Because I think what the ECB found, that like, even when they won the World Cup in 2019, um, that they didn't really have a higher you know, participation rate, especially at grassroots levels. And what they want to do is they want to get like, more fans involved in cricket. They want to expand the game. And at the end of the day, You know, we can have the the singers, we can have the fireworks, we can have great entertainment. The real selling point for the 100-100 is going to be the quality of the cricket. If the cricket is is of the highest quality, that's what is going to get people watching the game. And uh, at the moment, you know, it's only one game yet. You know, we we need to see a few more. Oh, sure. But um, I'm sure, you know... I'm not convinced. Far from it. I may even take you
0: to a 100-100 game, just to convince you. All right, I'll come with you. All right, it's a deal. (laughs) No, I'll come with you, it's a deal, and, and maybe you'll convince me. Are we going to beat India in the Test Series? That's, I
6: think, a really good question. I think that will depend if they pick Ollie Robinson, because Ollie Robinson is as the second highest, I think, high, in a high arm, you know, release point. Yep. And, you know, uh, Carl Jameson, who played at the World Test Championship. And, um, you know, Indian batsmen struggled against people, against bowlers, you know, who are really tall bowlers. And Ollie Robinson, again, but, he
0: could pose that threat. But he's been cancelled. He's in the squad. He's in the 17-man squad. But he was cancelled, which brings me on very neatly to what happened to the penalty takers in the England football team and some tweets were sent, messages were sent. We don't know how many came from this country, how many were provocative, how many actually were, you you know, genuinely vicious and nasty. Um, And we've heard Michael Holding speak out. Um, I mean, I'm going to ask you straight, you know... Do you think this is a racist country? Could I ask you a question? Mm. Instead,
6: Mm. when England lose, why does racism come to surface?
0: I think... Why didn't it come when Germany, when we beat Germany 2-0? Do you know what? If the internet had existed when Gareth Southgate missed, back in 1996, he would have received all sorts of verbal abuse, pointing out every facial feature or height feature or... I mean, look, I think... I think the internet's a bit of a sewer, um, and I think that a lot of those tweets and messages came from overseas, uh, possibly some from agent provocateurs. Are there a few morons that say terrible things? Yeah. You know, ask any pop singer, ask anybody who's in the public domain, and they're criticised for their hair colour, for their skin colour, for their, whatever it may be. It's, it's a horrible, horrible place. What I hate is the idea that that is somehow reflective of us as a country as a whole or sport as a whole? Because I just don't believe it.
6: Well, the thing is, right, what, the, what, what, what was disappointing about it all was that it was so predictable. You know, we had the three of other pen- penalty takers, they yeah. missed it, yeah. and they kind of, like... Um, you kind of expected that something like that would surface, you know, of, of, of the abuse. And you obviously, you're in the view that, you know, England isn't kind of, you know, racist. And my, I think my, what my opinion is, is that when we see something like this, we beat Germany first time in 55 years in a, in a major global yeah, tournament great. since 1966. And it still wasn't enough. For the fans
0: to, you know, the fans to, you know, th- th- it's, that's not right. There they are 70 sh- million people in this country. Yeah. If a couple of hundred said nasty things, should we judge the rest of the country on what a couple of hundred people But, do? but,
6: but, but I think what my point is, that they shouldn't do that. It's no, not no, no, right. No. no one's arguing they yeah. should,
0: but it's about scale. That's the point I'm making, I but, think. But, but, but the, is, the thing is,
6: it takes only a few words of these kind of comments, and then suddenly, you know, yeah. people have a different image about England. And, you know, we saw some of the, you know, footages on, uh, you know, um, after the game... We with some of the fans you may even say there were a few hundred fans but we don't want you know, England to be in a position when it comes to 2030 to bid for the World Cup well, and then the UEFA and FIFA say oh I, by the
0: way a few what. hundred fans the way Wembley was organised I was there for the final it was yeah. such a complete shambles that before we bid for the World Cup we must have an inquiry into what went wrong what next for Monty Panasar
6: Well, what what next? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. Well, next is possibly to have have the Monty Panessa show as well. Well, (laughs) who knows? There we are. There's a
0: bid from my guest, Monty Panessa. He wants a show here on GB News. That's after he's taken me to see The 100. Monty, thank you very much indeed for coming along and joining me on Talking Pints. That was great fun, wasn't it? Okay, now, to finish off, it's the Barrage the Farage moment where you fire your questions in at me. What pint are you drinking, Nigel? Well, I have to say, I'm absolutely certain that this is... um, I shouldn't really be advertising or saying who it is, but London Pride and those of you that know your beer will work out who is the brewer. Now, Stephen also asks, why do... Migrants risk the channel crossings rather than stay in France or any other EU country. Does the UK offer better opportunities and benefits? Oh, goodness gracious me, yes. I mean, you come into this country illegally and you're processed and it's off to a four-star hotel and it's three square meals a day and it's £38 a week, pocket money, Um, and you go through that uh, and you lodge your uh, asylum, refugee application, and even if you fail, no-one tells you that that you're going to be deported. Um, And so far, so good. It all looks great up until that stage. And then you finish up going into the criminal underworld, because that's probably the only option you've got. Uh, And for so many of these people who see England as the dream, they finish up in a form of modern day slavery and we should be ashamed of that fact and too few people are talking about it is my view. Now let's keep going. June asks me just how are the police going to enforce non-vaccinators obeying the two metre distance rule. The answer is they're not Um, and I'm afraid, I'm afraid that uh, the whole thing uh, when it comes to enforcing areas like that is a little bit of a joke.